Thanks for listening to a little more conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Byrne. Tonight, much maligned in the 80s and early 90s, the mullet is making a real comeback now as more men and women embrace the business in the front, party in the back style. Uh, we hear from the founder of the USA Mullet Championships. Yes, there is such a thing. And the 2023 Men's Main, M-A-N-E, event champion for best mullet. The moon may seem kind of ageless to us here on Earth, but for a long time, scientists believe it was about 4.42 billion years old. That is being revised, and it could well mean the moon is older than we thought. What does it mean? Why does it matter? We find out. Ahead of Halloween, Barry Hertz of the Globe Mail joins us to chat about his list of Canada's 20 best horror movies. It features a lot of Cronenberg, but also some classic 70s and early 80s B-movies, some more recent ones as well, and he'll tell us all about it. But first, if you're my age, you probably grew up fascinated by KTEL Records and the eclectic mix of music they allowed you to discover. Well, former Bare Naked Ladies frontman Stephen Page is part of a collective called the Trans-Canada Highwaymen, alongside Mo Berg of Pursuit of Happiness, Sloan's Chris Murphy, and Odds guitarist Craig Northey. And their first album is a tribute to Canadian AM classics of the late 60s and the early 70s, called appropriately with a KTEL theme, Explosive Hits Volume 1. It includes everything from Joni Mitchell and the Guess Who to Lighthouse and the Stampeders, Paul Anka and Andy Kim. And Stephen Page is with me to roll back the years and crank up the jukebox. We're going to talk... KTEL tonight. Well, not directly. We're going to talk a tribute to the kinds of songs you would have found on one of those classic KTEL albums back in the 70s. Now, of course, the first album, like many Canadians, the first album I ever bought for myself was a KTEL record. I think it was called Wings of Sound. I remember vividly that it had the Pina Colada song on it because I think that's why I bought it. But it also had all kinds of other things on it that were that were really cool. I think it had Casey and the Sunshine Band, maybe some Michael Jackson. There was definitely some Canadian bands. I think there was a Klaatu song and a few others. But we wanted to talk tonight about KTEL Records. Do you remember the first KTEL record you ever bought? Or if you can't remember the name of it, do you remember anything that was on it? Because there used to be like 30, it was like the Spotify of its day. There used to be like 30 tracks on those records, right? The the grooves, the songs were so close together. Anyway, they, they didn't sound great, but man, were they fun to listen to back in the day. So let me know your first KTEL record or a song that was on it. Let me know. one 877 399 is the text line. 1-877-399-9898. The reason we bring this up tonight is because Stephen Page, who you may remember, founder and integral part of the Bare Naked Ladies for years, lead singer, writer, or co-writer of their biggest hits, including If I Had a Million Dollars, Brian Wilson, and so on, he left the band in 2009 to set off on a series of solo projects. And one of them is something um, something of a Canadian supergroup called the Trans-Canada Highwaymen. In it, Page is joined by Pursuit of Happiness lead singer Mo Berg, Sloan's Chris Murphy, and guitarist Craig Northy of The Odds. And they've been performing together for quite a few years now, playing versions of their respective most popular tracks from those all those different bands. Well, now they're set to release something different over the weekend. And if you're a fan of those KTEL records and those classic Canadian pop tunes from 69 to 75, you're going to love this. Hi, I'm Craig Northey. I'm Stephen Page. I'm Chris Murphy. And I'm Mo Berg. And we're the, the Trans-Canada Trans Highwaymen. When Mo, Chris, Craig, and Stephen were kids, they were glued to their AM radios. 
Now they've recorded their favorite Canadian hits from the late 60s and early 70s together in one fantastic collection, Trans-Canada Highwaymen, Explosive Hits, Volume 1. And you know she can feel it, cause that's the way she likes to fly. Available on LP, cassette, compact disc, and streaming. It is not 8-track, though, unfortunately. Wouldn't an 8-track have been great? I guess you can't make those anymore. Again, it's suitably called Explosive Hits Volume 1. It features 14 tunes. One of them is an original called uh, The Theme from the Trans-Canada Highwaymen. And there are 13 others. Again, all of them covers Canadian top 10 hits from 69 to 75. They put a lot of effort into picking out songs that will be familiar to most and some that won't be. Uh, you heard April Wines. Tonight is a wonderful time to fall in love there. There's Pike Liero's 11 U80 easy the guess who's undone jody mitchell's ba- uh, raised on robbery andy kim's rock me gently uh, carry me by the stampeders there's a ton of stuff on it well 13 to be exact uh, a tribute to can rock am radio of its day Stephen page joins me now thank you so much hey thank you for uh, having me on the show what a cool idea what an absolutely cool idea i mean i think you know any kid who grew up in the 70s was so intimately familiar with ktel records they were sort of you know the spotify of their time uh and the idea to sort of do you remember the first one you ever had do, do, do you remember your first ktel record i think the first one i had was called full tilt so that oh, would, cool. would have been in in the late disco days right um i had a couple of that era that kind of right like range from i would say but 78 to maybe 81 um so I, you know, maybe it's past the heyday. I'm a little bit younger than a couple of the guys in the in the the highwaymen. So it's like right. some of their their KTEL memories are like um are are like full on bubblegum. Where mine might have the thing about the KTEL records is you could see the the ads for the KTEL record on TV. Yeah, and they would make an ad for the KTEL record that would show all over North America, but the Canadian version would have like four songs taken off it. That were that were advertised on TV that looked awesome. Right, and like four Canadian songs they would put in instead. Yeah, I didn't really like. We didn't know this as kids, but like Canadian music, as great as it was in those days of the 60s, 70s, 80s, in a lot of ways, like it's as if we were in the Soviet Union. Like, if you were to try to talk to anybody outside of Canada, unless they were had some bizarre Canada fetish, they would not know most of these songs. Um, you know, there's only a few ones like that, like the Guess Who or like Joni Mitchell that people everywhere would know, but they're kind of part of the Canadian culture. And I think that's, that's like, that's perfect thing for us to do. It is. It is. I, yeah. I remember that so distinctly. You'd be like, Hey, I, you know, there's the, the, the new earth, wind and fire songs on that, whatever compilation, you know, hit yeah. parade. And then you'd come back and instead it was a Klaatu song. No offense to Klaatu. Exactly. Right. That's exactly right. <laughs> no offense um, to Klaatu. Yeah. I remember, I remember it well. Yes. I think I actually I think I actually might have done the reverse once. I seem to remember going to Florida. My grandmother lived in Florida half she was a, a snowbird, yeah. lived in Florida half the year. And I remember going to Florida, saving up my money and buying a KTEL record and didn't have the Klaatu song that I wanted, <laughs> right. which was which was a knee deep in love. A later That's a period. great song. Yeah. That's I a know. great song. And so I'm hoping this record does well enough because this is volume one, right? Yep. This is 1969 to 75. And the plan is if people like this, then we'll do like 75 to 81 and then we'll do like 81 to 90 is the third one so in there I, I like that's my that was definitely uh knee deep in love is one of my choices for for future record i can't wait to hear it 
tell me about, I mean, uh, the, the, the Highwaymen, the Trans-Canada Highwaymen, I should use the full name. Yeah. Uh, you, you, you often play each other's songs, which, and there's a huge repertoire there to play, obviously, between a bunch of bands. Uh, you know, Pursuit of Happiness, The Odds, you, uh, you know, you solo, Bare Naked Ladies, and so on. But what, where did you get the idea to, because this is kind of your first album, where did you get the idea to do, uh, to go back in time and sort of do the hit parade and, and these particular songs? Well, you know, in, in a way, we wanted to do something that was that was like fun and unique. And, you know, a lot of us have multiple side projects, particularly right. Chris Murphy from Sloan has about 75 side projects. Right. He's got his band Anyway Gang. He's got his band Tons. And then he's got Sloan. And, um, you know, our our live show was essentially the four of us singing kind of our biggest hits and switch, swapping instruments. So, you know. Chris plays drums on one song, and then I play drums on the song, and then we play someone plays bass. And Chris kind of gets short shrift actually because he he's such a good drummer that everybody wants him to play drums on their song, but then <laughs> right. we who are lousy drummers have to play drums on his song, so we all kind of wreck his songs. Sorry, Chris, but <laughs> the uh, we were thinking like during the pandemic, we started we did some videos just you know just to kind of past the time it was really just something fun for us to do is we would each do a part and then stitch it together and make a video and we put them up on social media and that kind of thing and we just thought like what can we do next we want to keep doing stuff so we started coming up with a a list of songs we wanted to do and chris, chris had this great idea of making the packaging look just like a kato record and then our you know at that point then the brainstorming was endless so we decided like what why don't we do this why don't we play choose our favorite Canadian songs. And when our list was that long, we realized we had to kind of split it into three eras. Now this era, 1690 to 75, I'm 53. Mm -hmm. That's it's a right up to about the moment where I started paying attention to music. So there's like, there are songs that I didn't really know on this either. Cause I would say six or seven is when I started listening to the radio religiously. Um, but uh, so it was, it was a, I'm looking, as I said, looking forward to the next next edition of this. But the fun thing was that we were sending tracks, you know, back and forth to each other and, uh, and you know, adding on to each other's thing and then creating the hilarity. We did a full infomercial for this as well. Like, there's a 17-minute, like, but wait, there's more kind of infomercial. But it's, it is like, Chris directed this, and it's hilarious because there's lots of great outtakes of us just corpsing. But really, we're trying to be... Just like those Time Life ads where you'd have like some band from the 60s standing there stiffly talking. Well, the 1960s were a difficult time for the world, but music made everything feel better. That yeah. kind of thing. So that's with the, the kind of thing. With the did. couple in the fire. I always remember the couple exactly. sitting with the fire. You know, oh, I yeah. love this song. Do you remember this song? <laughs> wow. <laughs> but I mean, you know what? The thing is, with a lot of the music, especially, the, I mean, I, I didn't know, and I'm about the same age as you are. So I was born in 1970. So I probably, the first songs I remember are like 76, 75, yeah. 76, 77, kind of. And, you know, 69 to 75, these are 68 to 75. These are songs I would have heard on the radio, some of them, because they were big. Uh, mostly, and the thing about the music, too, and we could talk about this in a bit, it was it was much more regional back then. So of yes. course I'm really familiar. I grew up in Montreal, so obviously Pagliaro, uh, April Wine. I'm and I'm really familiar with those songs. I wasn't so familiar with some of the other ones that were more sort of West Coast hits or Toronto hits. Right. Yeah. That's like that's the thing. Like I, like 
Craig chose this great song, You Can't Catch Me by Bim. Well, that's, yeah. that's a guy that I knew like when we started playing shows in the early 90s, and he might be like on a folk festival with us. Right. And I'd have I'd, like I could find out a little bit about who he was. I'd never heard his music before. But for Craig, it seems crazy that we wouldn't have heard it because growing up in Vancouver, it was everywhere. Um, and there's a lot less of that now. That regional that that was the impact of local radio. I mean, you had it everywhere, but Canada was was a, a perfect example of that. And then, you know, we didn't know growing up in Ontario that there'd be like, I don't know, bands like Max Webster or something like that that were so like they were so Southern Ontario in a way that that, uh, you know, people out West would go, yeah, that's an Ontario band. Yeah. And, you know, we when we started Bare Naked Ladies, that was a thing we were cons- like we were conscious of that. When we started touring, we thought that the last thing we want to do is be like a Toronto Queen Street band. We watched, you know, lots of our our mentors do that and our peers. But we kind of knew that that was a thing you could get kind of like, especially being in this, you know, Toronto, which is the center of the of the industry and center of the universe, quote unquote. Um, you know, we didn't want to do that. We wanted to be a Canadian band. And so we traveled as quickly and as like as early and as often as we could. Um, but I've yeah. always been very conscious of like that that regionalism. Stephen Page is with us. Uh, we're talking about uh, the Trans Canada Highway Highwaymen. That's the band that he's formed with uh, Craig Northey of the Pursuit of uh, Craig Northey of the Odds, rather Mo Berg of the Pursuit of Happiness, and Chris Murphy from Chris Murphy from Sloan. Uh, and uh, the album is called Explosive Hits Volume One. It's fourteen tracks. Which, by the way, Steve, I was noticing. Um, there's an original as well, I should mention. So it's 13. for By, by KTEL standards, that's about half as many songs as you got on a KTEL record. And oh, it's like, amazing. Like yeah. that, you know, it's, it's funny now when you make when you make music and like you'll buy if, you, if any of your listeners are into like, you know, um, buying vinyl now, it's like four songs on a side. And yeah. every album is like a double album. Like when we when I make an album, the mastering engineers will always say, "Well, you got to put this on two pieces of vinyl now." And I think like when I was growing up, there'd be like thirteen songs on a side. But then <laughs> yeah. you you put one of those KTEL records on, and it's just all surface noise. Like they are so poorly pressed. Um, but the wonderful thing about those KTEL records is, as they said, original hits, original stars, and because there were all these other compilation records that would come out before that that were re-records of those yeah. songs, but like by sound alikes or barely sound alikes so we couldn't say original hits original stars on this one except for our one original song so i wrote a song called the theme from trans canada highwaymen which is kind of our it's our background it's our, it's our how we got the band together theme song yeah there's some great i mean there I, I will go through some of the songs on it because some of them listeners will be intimately familiar with uh you know she, uh, she uh, undone by the guess who is is a great great cover um there's uh, Joni Mitchell of course which is raised on robbery another great one and then there's some there's some ones that I grew up I mean loving you ain't easy by Pagliero is sort of a Montreal if you listen to yeah. show in Montreal you're going to hear that eventually same with April Wines today is a wonderful time to fall in love I interviewed Andy Kim on the show a while back uh, to talk about Gordon Lightfoot oddly enough because they had number ones about a couple of weeks apart back in 74 mm-hmm. I guess it was and he tells this incredible story I thought of you because as a songwriter or someone who's had hit big hits he loved uh, "Rock You Gently," uh, and 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 and, but "Rock Me Gently" rather, but no one else did. So he believed in this song so fiercely that he basically tried to sell it for a year and a half before it became a big hit. And I thought songwriting can be a weird thing. I mean, hits can be a weird thing. Yeah, for sure. I remember, and and 
you know, we're in a time now where things are so, you know, attention spans are short and social media and TikToks are, you know, it's, everything's in small bites. And basically you either hit your moment or it's gone. Right. And then some, you know, but then like one of the, the interesting things about TikTok is you get older songs all of a sudden have new lives kind of without any kind of promotion getting them there. It's kind of just by luck. But when, when Bare Naked Ladies were coming up, we had the song, The Old Apartment. Yeah. We released in 1990, in early 1996. And our record company, Reprise, which was part of Warner Brothers in the U.S., worked that song, like from, we were talking about regional radio before. Like they would go from region to region for over a year. I remember recording a version of it that I sang, Happy Birthday, Old Apartment. It's like kind of a thank you to the record company. So it eventually went top 40 in the United States. But it would be the kind of thing where it would like go top 10 in Detroit and then fall off the charts and then top 10 in Chicago and fall off the charts. And they never gave up on it. And that was like, even then was unheard of uh, for record companies to kind of have that tenacity. Um, but when they believe in something, you know, or when the artist believes in something like that, sometimes too, it's really worth doing it. I mean, Rock Me Gently is awesome. For us, we actually, Bare Naked Ladies actually played that with Andy Kim oh, wow. at the, the Kumbaya Festival. I think it was like 95, uh, which was like, um, an AIDS fundraiser that broadcast on much music coast to coast to coast. And they would have, you know, different artists doing duets together. And it was kind of his comeback. He'd been out of the spotlight for a bunch of years. And uh, we did that as his kind of his his reemergence onto the scene. So it was fun to sing that to this record. When Mo, Chris, Craig, and Steven were kids, they were glued to their AM radios. Now they've recorded their favorite Canadian hits from the late 60s and early 70s together in one fantastic collection, Trans-Canada Highwaymen, Explosive Hits, Volume 1. Available on LP, cassette, compact disc, and streaming. Order now. Stephen Page, formerly of the Bare Naked Ladies. I see that a lot, Stephen, sort of formerly of PNR. I try not to use the name too, too much. But uh, it's funny, like my, my, like my diehard fans, they keep saying to me, when can you lose the formerly of? And it's like, well, I can't. It's like I'm, I'm always formerly of. Like, it's yeah. just the way it is. And I can't ever expect. And it's not like I, I say it all the time, but if you're, but it's like, OK, you might know who I am. But if I told you what band I used to be in, then you're going to know. You know, when I used to take this stuff a lot more seriously, I would think, well, you know, they don't never said like Peter Gabriel, formerly of Genesis. But, you know, I think you need you need whatever helping hand you can get just just to reach people these days. So just to remind people like, hey, this is a fun thing to check out because you have so many choices now. I have to say, just looking through the first three songs that were put up on YouTube, looking back at some of the songs that are on there, and I'll, I should mention a few of them. So there's Loving You Ain't Easy by uh, Michel Pagliaro. Uh, mm-hmm. April Wines, Tonight is a Wonderful Time to Fall in Love, which is a really good tune. Undone by the Guess Who. Pretty Lady by Lighthouse, which I didn't really know. Um, Rock Me Gently, we mentioned, Raised on Robbery. Chester is a band I'd never heard of. Make My Life a Little Bit Brighter. I never heard that song I did, before. I, did, I didn't know it either. Yeah. That's another, that's another like Craig, Craig was like, you don't know this one. It's a, and it was a good, it is a great one, but that's the fun thing was I had no kind of emotional connection to it. So I could right. just 
you know, play and sing as if it was my friend in my band brought in a new song. Yeah. Heartbeat, It's a Love Beat is an interesting one. And I'll, I'll tell you why. Many, many years ago, I think I had a friend in school who wasn't really that into music. We were probably in, in uh, we were young, must have been young. And he would he would always say, well, my favorite song is Heartbeat, It's a Love Beat by the DeFranco family. I'm like, what are you talking about? And he would yank out this old KTEL record. And it was like track two. And this was a Canadian band that were sort of our Osmonds, if, if, you, have them, right. if you don't remember them. And that was a really interesting choice because this is a pretty wide there's a big tent on this record of, of Canadian songs of the era. Yeah, I think that was that's what makes it so fun. It's one of one of our rules when we were picking the songs was that every song had to have been top ten in Canada. So they can't just be some obscure B side or something we happen to like. But they actually were hits. Uh, but you know the the idea of a Canadian hit when you think of how small our country was in 1973 or whatever compared to now, I mean it, it's it's a pretty um, it doesn't didn't take a lot of records to sell a gold record in Canada back then. It, it was you know we're a small country, and uh, some of these interesting little hits can come through. I mean, Heartbeat is a little bit was a hit in the in the U.S. as well, yeah. and it's such a weird song because it is somewhere between it it is like you could tell that the people who produced it were trying to make kind of like a Jackson five kind of record uh, and an, or an Osmond's kind of record, but it's also got really weird changes and weird sections and key changes and stuff. That's it's uh it's vaguely psychedelic. It's like, to me, it's like the flaming lips meet the Osmond's. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's, it's no, I mean, I was, it's no, uh, mystery that bubblegum, as they called it, which was kind of a pretty derisive term for music at the time, the way that it was marketed in the Brill music crowd and, the, uh, and so on, Brill building crowd, actually became sort of foundational for things like punk, uh, things like New Wave, because it was simple and catchy and it, it, there was something magical about it, even though people were kind of dismissive of it. Well, a lot of those songs actually, in um, which are I think are awesome songs of the, of the bubblegum era, um, were actually like people like 10 CC were the actual backing band on the records. Right. Um, you know, they would get real ringers to come in and play on them. And it's interesting you say that because we were talking about, you know, my first KTEL record, my actual first KTEL record I ever got was goofy greats, which was a double album. So that meant double right. album being like 150 songs on it. And that would have been about 1976. And it was all novelty songs. So it was like everything from, uh, you know, the streak by Ray Stevens to, um, uh, they're, you know, they're coming to take me away or, but a, there was a bunch of, um, bubblegum stuff, yummy, yummy, yummy. And, and one, uh, one, two, three, red light and those kinds of songs. Sugar, sugar, maybe. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, um, surf and bird, which one of the greatest recordings of all time, but I, I swear that that record, um, had probably as big an effect on my taste and my ear as any Beatles record did. Like it's, it's that important to me. And of course I was in a band that was, had novelty elements and had humor and so on. But I think just generally the sense of like the breadth of what pop song, what you can compress into two minutes of a song was like, came out of those KTEL records. Yeah. And the idea that music doesn't have to appeal necessarily to the brain, right? I mean, that it's <laughs> that it that it can be and that people want to want to hear fun stuff. I mean, one thing that really stood out about the music on this album and just the way that, that you and the band have been talking about it is that it sounds like you had a lot of fun. And man, we could use a bit of that, you know? That's the thing for us is like we we love being around each other, the four of us. You know, we don't have to do this. We do this because we it's 
it's a blast for us. Um, and then when we started doing that, we're thinking people, people our age are going to gonna like this. Like whether it's, whether it's coming to see our shows where we're playing, I'm an adult now and underwhelmed and uh, Brian Wilson and whatever else, like you get to hear all those songs in one show um, is pretty awesome. And then you add to this kind of nostalgia with a bit of a wink and a nod uh, of, of kind of classic Canadiana. To me, it seems like a no-brainer. Um, if I was me, which I am, I'd love it. You know, but, but we just get we. It's a lot of laughs. It's like our honestly, our text chain. I think saved my mental health in the early days of of COVID. Like in 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 2020, when we were all wondering, you know, feeling completely isolated, that was one of the things that kind of kept me afloat. Was like looking forward to the jokes and the and uh, the memes and whatever else that led into making this record. Yeah, I, I think a lot of us went back to music from a happier music that brought us to a happier place at the height of the pandemic. I mean, I had yeah. friends and, and I had friends who went back to their to their to their bare naked ladies records because sure. it reminded them of like the 90s and it was light and fun. And, you know, that's what they wanted to hear. They didn't want to hear Eve of Destruction. Right. They wanted to hear or, or <laughs> listen to the Smiths, you know, bless the Smiths. But they didn't want to listen to that stuff. They wanted something a little light. And I think what's great about this, that the songs on this album is it kind of reflects that, too. These are all I mean, not all of them are light tracks. I mean, there's Journey Mitchell and the Guess Who. Those are sort of seminal tracks in Canadian history. But a lot of them have that have a bit of that flavor of, you know, let's just enjoy it. The, the music's here to make you have fun. That's right. And if anybody's been thinking, I wonder what it would sound like to hear Stephen Page play a flute solo on Undone by the I Guess do. Who. <laughs> this is one of my proudest moments. I, the best part is, like, I'm kind of the guy in the band who is I'm a bit of a slacker. And I was like, I'm always like that a little bit. I've got lots of ideas, but I just don't want to take all the time to work something out really well. So I think, I think sometimes my friends in the band expect a little bit less from me. And uh, and then when I handed in my tracks with this flute solo, they're like, you're kidding. What wow. did you it was actually it's actually good. I, I feel like I just got lucky. Did you know that Burton Cummings, because I looked this up earlier, he also had to learn to play the flute for that song. He had never played the flute before. They made him go to I didn't know he, I didn't know he'd never played the flute before. I don't think so. I don't think so. I think they made him go to buy a flute just to do the solo on Undone. There's a clip of I think it's it's just Randy and and uh Burton playing it together in maybe the late 70s, like one of their kind of reunions. And it's just the two of them playing and he's playing the keyboard and singing it and he just like picks up the flute in the middle and plays this flute solo like total you know, Ron Burgundy flute solo yeah. and then puts the flute back down and keeps playing. And, and that was awesome. Burton Cummings vocals. And I was like, well, like, I guess the gauntlet is being put, put down. And I now have to, I now have no choice but to do this. So for me now getting ready for these shows, I have to figure out how to move my hands from the keyboard to pick up the flute. Where do I put the flute when I put it back down? Like it's going to roll around on top of my keyboard. I got to get some kind of special flute stand. Uh, you're going to take this. I mean, you've been doing some really interesting stuff, Stephen, recently. You've been doing some work with it, with orchestras I was seeing, that would, which must be awesome. And you're going to take this on the road as well. Yeah, we've been, we've had quite a year with the, you know, I have the Stephen Page trio uh, that we've been traveling around. We started last year with uh you know, I put my last my my last solo album, Excelsior, came out last year, and we mm -hmm. start, we followed that up with a tour opening for the Who, um, which was like a childhood wow. dream come true. Yeah. So, and you know, this trio it's just it's guitar, uh, cello, and then I play I play acoustic guitar and piano. So no drums, no big, you know, 
double stack guitar uh, amps or anything like that. And it's still, we were playing these arenas and, you know, filling it up with sound and getting these amazing responses. So that was a great kind of buoyed me through the year. But then we just finished doing some shows with the, uh, the Winnipeg Symphony Orchestra, which was just fantastic. Actually, in the Burton Cummings Theater. I'm singing Burton's songs. I'm playing in his theater. I'm all, you know, I I, I guess maybe uh, he's uh, he's my my uh, my touchstone in Canadian music. So that's been pretty amazing. And then yeah, then we we are getting ready to, to uh, announce a, a tour with the with the Trans Canada Highwaymen. So we'll be hopefully over by the by the middle of 2024, we will have touched all three, at least all west and east coasts of Canada. Yeah, and you and you, as you mentioned, because again, looking at the uh, at the track list, I, I kept thinking of other songs, and then think, oh, well, there's that's slightly out, that's slightly out of the uh, exactly out of that time frame. So there will be there will be other ones of the there will be a volume two and a volume perhaps a volume I three. Ha- I hope so. What are your requests? Well, I'm trying to think of songs that I really I wanted to make sure they were Canadian. I had to make sure yeah. they fit the bill, right? So I'm thinking of like Clatu, of course, Knee Deep in Love. Yeah. That's a fantastic one. I remember that from I think it was called Sound Explosion was the record that I. Had. Had. Awesome. Um, yeah, maybe you know, maybe you throw some. I'm, I'm going to move into the 80s now, and I want to stay in the 70s. But there are some incredible records. I mean, there's some other Pagliero ones. I'm trying to think of bands you could do. Trooper, maybe you might have to do yes. some Trooper. Well, I think we, we, we have we have to do some Trooper. Yeah, for sure. Trooper would be a good one. I, and I'm trying to think of ones that aren't too. I mean, there there are so many other famous artists that have had kind of you know, like Neil Young songs that you could do that mightn't be as well, that's well known. A, we could have done a Neil Young song in this. We could have done, yeah. definitely this, this would have covered like the harvest era, but I just thought, I don't know. I mean, I have, I, a, I've covered a couple of Neil Young songs before and he's one of my favorites, but I just felt like this was the chance to, you know, the next one I think will be our chance to do some street heart or some Harlequin. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's not necessarily the stuff that I grew up loving, but it's the stuff I grew up like knowing it was just all over on the radio and, you know, stuff like I'd love to be able to do, uh, uh, Switch into Glide by the King. Oh, that's a good song. Or, you know, uh, a, a, a Rough Trade song. Like, that's why I can't wait to get into the 80s so we can get to the stuff that, like, really means a lot to me. Yeah. You would do, you know, yeah, I, 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 for the yes, that would be, I spoke to Bruce Coburn on the show not long ago, and I think we spoke about uh, the, your version of Lovers in a Dangerous Time. You would do a great version of Wondering Where the Lions Are as well, I would think. Yeah, that'd be fun. I love the song. I'm a big fan of Bruce, and, you know, that's that'd be cool. Yeah. Honestly, it sounds like you're you're having fun making music. And what else can you want after having spent a career in music to still be having fun making music? As I mean, we're, we're as I mentioned, we're roughly the same age. As you move through the move through the decades, I know how lucky I am. Like I I I, I think I enjoy what I do and every kind of permutation of uh, and 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 every type of ensemble I play with, whether I play by myself or I'm doing a live stream from here in my studio or I'm out on the road. I really enjoy all of it probably more than I ever have. Um, I'm a little more relaxed about it. Uh, I don't take it quite as personally as I once did. You know, like when you're young and you're kind of like you're building up a career, you're planning ahead, you're reaching for something. And now you're now you're just reaching backwards, trying to hang on for dear life. And that's way more fun. <laughs> <laughs> and 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 this, the touring, I mean, there's and also was there there's some some people you've been bringing along as well. Was I reading that, that your son was involved in, in, in one of your concerts recently? Is that right? Yeah. My, my eldest son um, is actually uh, conducting wow. the orchestra for, oh, I'm doing a show this coming weekend uh, in uh, Waterloo, Ontario. And my, see, my eldest son, Isaac, who is a composer and a conductor and 
is uh, is actually going to be conducting this show, which is amazing. So I'll be there with the trio and a small chamber orchestra and Isaac Page conducting. So that's like that's a proud dad moment there for sure. I was going to say, how cool is that to be able to because that's a very different path than what you took into music, right? That's that's a different way of doing it. But but uh, but it must be. Yeah. How, how cool is that? Yeah, it's the greatest. And, you know, I had my 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 middle child, Ben, um, was out on the road with us a little while ago in the spring and came up and played keyboards and, and sang with us a bunch. But but uh, they're a, a musical theater singer and an actor. So, again, like in the arts, in music, but again, a slightly different ta- uh, tack than dad took. Right. Now, this is I only bring this up because I, I spoke to Sam Roberts last week and we asked he has kids. They're young teens and, and they don't like his music. <laughs> they're like, is this one of your songs, dad? And I, how about your kids? Do they like the, Do they like the stuff? You, I was you've so done? lucky. I, I I always would watch my peers who often had like kids who were embarrassed by their parents kind of fame. Like, you know, it's, that can be a tough thing sometimes on a kid. They feel like it makes people look at them strangely. Uh, or they're just yeah they're embarrassed by dad or mom and what their what their music is or they're very uncool. My kids never thought that when they were really little. I remember I did a song, I sang the theme song for the Thomas the Tank Engine movie right. in, in about two thousand, and I only took the gig because my eldest was little. My eldest was like uh, would have been six then or five, so I thought perfect. You know, I'll 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 sing this for him, and then I took him to the premiere at the movie theater and the thing starts and i, I turned and i said the song's playing and i said you know who this is and he goes yeah it's you so that's right and that's that was it. it he didn't care he like he knew who it was it was like but i think he didn't realize that not everybody's dad had a song in the movie in their favorite movie like he just never you just i'm he when he was little he was in the same class at school as one of gord downey's daughters and we'd be like oh did you know her dad is is in a band called the Tragically Hip, and I then I I once saw my young son in kindergarten asking other kids, "What band is your dad in?" Because he just assumed everybody that meant everybody's dad that makes is in the band. But no, my yeah. kids my kids actually know my music. Like they'll they'll sing with me. They like it. They've always grown up into it. So I've been very lucky that way. Yeah, Stephen Page, congratulations on the record. It's a great idea. As I said, I the moment I saw it, I'm like, what a great idea. And uh, I look forward to seeing you uh, out on tour with the Trans-Canada Highwaymen. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me on. Uh, now we're going to talk, we're still going to talk Canadian culture. How about the 20 best horror movies made in this country ever? Have a listen to one that I'm sure you may remember. This is David Cronenberg's 1986 film, The Fly. There is a limit, even to the imagination. Human teleportation, molecular decimation, breakdown, and reformation is inherently purging. Where our greatest creations meet our deepest fears. Something went wrong, Seth. When you went through, something went wrong. There it is, with Jeff Goldblum and Gina Davis, of course. Uh, one of the movies included on my next guest's countdown of the 20 greatest Canadian horror films as we get ourselves in the mood for Halloween early next week. A perfect topic, of course. Uh, there are some really interesting ones in there. Some, many of them that I'd seen, specifically the older ones. I guess sometimes that's what happens as you get older. Uh, but lots of films, B-movies from the 70s, including movies like Black Christmas and The Changeling. And 90s classics such as The Cube, more recent ones such as Possession by Brandon Cronenberg, you'll recognize that surname. Keep it in mind because Father David is kind of the king of the king of the crop here. He's uh, 
got a lot of films in this top 20. So put down the pumpkin, spark up the TV, and let's unwrap the best Canadian horror movies to watch ahead of Halloween. Barry Hertz is the film editor at The Globe, and he joins me now. Barry, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. What an interesting list. I was really fascinated by it because some of the more modern ones I hadn't seen. I mean, I've heard of them, but just hadn't seen them of, of late. My wife's not a big fan of horror movies, so we don't watch a ton of them. But some of the older ones were great. I was so happy to see sort of Scanners and The Changeling and Black Christmas. I mean, what a great list to put together. Oh, thanks. Well, you know, I thought uh, something seasonal um, for Halloween. Of course, you know, everybody wants to have their own <clears throat> scary movie marathon. And then it got me thinking, you know what? Um, you know, frightening number high high number of horror classics you know emerge from our country's film industry what makes canadian horror films and you pointed out what do you think makes canadian horror films slightly different from the american ones well i think um you know it 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 has to do with kind of our national inferiority complex i guess you know we're always trying to measure up to our mightier neighbors to the south and um you know making a horror movie is kind of expressing those fears channeling them through canadian storytelling and you know often our filmmakers are working with fewer resources um, certainly fewer name brand stars um, but those are actually kind of not necessarily um, bugs but features for horror because you can make a really gross scary film with very little money and nobody's really coming to a horror movie to see Brad Pitt or George Clooney fend off somebody uh, they just want to see people get scared and killed um, so it all plays to our benefit and of course we have the grandfather of horror cinema in general across you know north american horror cinema david cronenberg um as one of our proudest sons yeah i mean there's a lot of cronenberg in here dead ringers isn't which is interesting because that's one of the ones i remember the most but there are a lot of david cronenberg movies in there uh, including the fly what makes his his movies are it's almost hard to to classify them is it but i guess in 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 a canadian context they really are especially the earlier ones scanners and so on those really are horror movies yeah totally i mean i could have and i was almost very well you know tempted to make the entire list of 20 movies is exclusively from cronenberg it, it's very easy to do um including dead ringers but i guess i would say you know i kind of included um his earlier work uh scanners as you say the brood shivers um and the fly there because it was just such a landmark moment for kind of creature feature cinema in general um because i think once um post scanners he kind of was tiptoeing ever so slightly away from straight or straight enough horror um to do something a bit more psychological um a bit more existential a bit more philosophical uh, you know, video drama I was wrestling with forever about including there or not. But in the end, I kind of considered it not necessarily a horror film. as kind of like a sci-fi, phantomagoria kind of existentialist piece. Anyways, yeah. which is all to say, like, the guy has shaped not only, you know, Western cinema's conception of horror, but definitely every Canadian filmmaker, whether they work in horror or not, in the decades since. Yeah. One of the ones that I was that I remember watching and haven't seen it. I, I'm going to try and rewatch it soon, thanks to you. Let's listen quickly to a trailer from Black Christmas, 1974. Yeah, what I've done is I've tapped this phone so that when it rings, it'll ring at the station house too. There was a little girl murdered over in the park tonight. Yes, I heard. 
Right. Uh, that is from Black Christmas. Now, it's amazing to see even the trailer because you'll recognize a very young Margot Kidder. I think a, a very young Andrea Martin as well in it. And Bob Clark directed. And it was, as you pointed out, uh, it was kind of a trailblazing horror movie of its day. Yeah, I mean, Black Christmas, um, you know, the whole call coming from inside the house trope that originates there. The kind of anonymous force of brutal slasher terror that cannot be stopped. Um, that's there too. John Carpenter's Halloween um, is really um, only exists because Black Christmas uh, got there first and, and Carpenter's been on the record about saying that. So really the whole modern idea of a, what a slasher movie is can be traced to Black Christmas. Um, and it's, influ it's influences, you know, it, it's hard to overstate. I really didn't know that. And then, of course, you include some ones that I remember vividly, Prom Night being one of them, that sort of um, Canada's answer to, I guess that sort of came out about the same time that all those slasher movies were coming out, Prom Night and My Bloody Valentine, I guess, is the other one. But those are pretty decent efforts on very, quite low budgets, by the way. Yeah, exactly. Very, you know, very solid efforts, low budgets, um, made very well use of their Canadiana settings. Um, and, you know, uh, Prom Night, has you know the original scream queen jamie lee curtis there um also right. a little uh, performance from leslie nielsen as well and you know while those kind of can be said to be derivative of the slashers at the time they also established their own kind of genre tropes that were picked up over and over and over again by imitators both here and in the u.s Amazing. Any ones of, of the more modern ones, which ones would you recommend for an audience that mightn't have dipped into more modern, um, modern? I mean, the cube I've seen, but some of the other ones, the, the ones made in the last decade, I haven't. Are there any ones that you, you would recommend in that, in that bunch for people out there? I think if you're looking for like a really good zombie film, um, which I think, you know, a lot of, uh, horror fans certainly are, um, blood quantum is a very interesting addition to that, um, directed by the late Jeff Barnaby, a Micmac filmmaker. Um, this one kind of takes place, um, on a reserve just Northeast in Northeast Quebec. And the kind of conceit there is that all of the world is falling apart to this zombie plague. But the indigenous people of the land are immune to the virus. And so they're now the ones who have to save the world. And all the white people are trying to get onto the reserve to save their own skin. So it's a very interesting, um, subversive take on the typical zombie film. And another one, another zombie-ish film um, that is kind of good for maybe those who are seeking a horror movie that's not as gory, uh, not as violent, um, but still just as intense in its chills is Bruce McDonald's Pontypool, um, right. which adapts a Tony Burgess novel in which uh, a zombie kind of apocalypse is actually transmitted not through a bite or, you know, through blood or anything like that, but rather through the English language, it's kind of like worms its way into your brain. And so this this movie kind of tells that tale through the perspective of, of a small town Ontario radio DJ who's kind of listening in, in on the world collapsing around him with a, with a really tremendous performance by veteran Canadian actor Stephen McCaddy. Where am I, man? I didn't even introduce myself to you gentlemen. My name is John Shaft. 
freeze. There he was, Richard Roundtree in the classic, the 1971 movie Shaft. Uh, Richard Roundtree passed away yesterday at the age of 81 of pancreatic cancer. Of course, he was made many movies and TV shows, but he was best known for that role that he it was his first big movie role. He was just 28 when he played John Shaft for the first time back in 1971. Barry Hertz is with us. He's the film editor at uh, the Globe and Mail. We've been talking about the best Canadian horror movies and some ones that were real trailblazers in the early 70s. And of course, Shaft was a real trailblazer because at the time it wasn't taken all that seriously um but over i mean it won an academy award for best soundtrack but when one looks back you can see just how seminal a movie it was for having uh you know an african-american hero in the lead and how many other movies it spawned over the years everything from tarantino and everything else afterwards yeah completely i mean you can't really overestimate the impact that it had in you know the larger kind of black exploitation genre um, these were telling that, uh, you know, black first stories uh, that were, had you know, tackling very important social issues with the thrill of like a grindhouse kind of action thriller. And it was all anchored by Richard. Yeah, it's hard to imagine. I mean, uh, the soundtrack, obviously, Gordon Parks was a great director, but Richard Roundtree really did carry that film. And I guess in some ways he was the perfect choice to play John Shaft. I, don't, I can't see it. Maybe it wouldn't have worked as well with someone, someone else. No, and I mean, you know, they've uh, they've tried to reboot Shaft, um, you, you know, not once but twice um, in the ensuing decades. Uh, the first one with Samuel L. Jackson, uh, but they still couldn't, you know, they couldn't leave Richard out of that and, you know, kind of slipped him in there because just, you know, for a character and an actor to be tied together so intrinsically, it, it's it's a rare thing. And, you know, he had the charisma, he had the screen presence, he had the physical presence um, that, you know, he was, you know, the ladies wanted to be with him. The guys wanted to be his best friend. Um, that, you know, that's the embodiment of Shaft. Yeah. It's weird, though, when you look back at the 70s, as popular as that movie was, and it made a lot, of, a lot more money than it cost to make. Um, it, it's interesting that he didn't go on to have the kind of career that, say, uh, that some, some other action stars of the era may have, right? I mean, he didn't, he didn't even have as a successful movie career as, say, a Chuck Norris did. And yet he had made these incredibly popular movies, which shows you sort of the barriers that were still very much and firmly in place uh, in the 70s, right through the 80s and beyond. Uh, completely. Yeah. I mean, like he was still, you know, it was, a, you know, runaway success, many sequels. Um, you know, the actor became synonymous with the character and yet it was kind of still siloed into that black exploitation genre and it's very hard to escape. Um, so the other kind of, you know, big studio movies, you know, they still were centering on, you know, white heroes, you know, your, your Chuck Norris's, your Stallones, your Schwarzeneggers eventually. Um, and that was still very much seen as a niche kind of thing. And it was very hard for him to break out. You know, he was a very hardworking actor. Um, you know, his credits number in, I believe, the hundreds, you know, he was on television, right. every major t kind of TV show you could think of at the time and, and beyond. Um, but yeah, from the feature film side, he was... He, I don't want to say typecast necessarily because he wasn't cast all that much outside of the Shaft movies um, for feature films. But you can definitely see that with success, there's like an asterisk next to it.
Yeah, he, apparently he was in he was in Magnum PI, which I wouldn't have known at the time because I wouldn't have seen Shaft yet. I, I think I seen I saw Shaft for the first time maybe in the mid to late eighties, early nineties. So I wouldn't have noticed him on Magnum PI, which I watched religiously as a kid. He always reminds me, of course, of, of Pam Greer, who had sort of a, a greater resurrection in many ways, maybe thanks to um, to uh, the Tarantino years. But that the Pam Greer was also a really great uh made some really great movies uh in the same era and it took a while for her to be uh, appreciated for what she had done as well yeah and i mean you, you and even when you know she got the very big uh, career resurrection moment in jackie brown thanks to tarantino um afterward she was still back in kind of the low budget genre arena um and not getting those kind of prime leading roles that she obviously was capable and then some of pulling off because you know, those barriers still existed. Um, and yes, Richard Roundtree never got, you know, the Tarantino kind of treatment, um, even though he was very much likely due for one. <clears throat> I mean, my exposure to Shaft also came very late. Like, I, you know, I wasn't around in the 70s when those movies were coming out, but it was actually through, I remember, um, you know, hearing about it for the first time as a concept through Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, like Will Smith right. and, and that show really referenced uh, Shaft uh, quite a bit. And I, you know, I, I knew there was a joke being played, but I had no context for it until I you know, did my own research eventually. Yeah, so a good weekend to watch a good Canadian horror film, and maybe if you have a chance, watch at least the first half. The, the movie kind of, Shaft kind of falls apart as it goes on, but the first half of Shaft is one of the greatest detective movies that I've ever seen. Uh, Barry, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Those were students at uh, UC Berkeley today, pro-Palestinian walkout uh, with hundreds chanting and a small group of Israeli students counter-protesting. Uh, it's just another reminder of something that's been happening for more than two weeks now on university campuses right across North America. And a reminder as well of how the events in Israel and the attack and murder by Hamas of some 1,400 mainly civilians, uh, including Canadians, and Israel's response has increased tensions on university campuses right across the continent. Some noted, noted examples, if you've been paying attention to this over the past few weeks, include the Harvard Undergraduate Palestinian Solidarity Committee and more than 30 other student groups putting out a letter stating, quote, we, the undersigned student organizations, hold the Israeli regime entirely responsible for all unfolding violence that earned a lot of condemnation here in Canada, York University in Toronto, three student unions, including the York Federation of Students, issued a statement saying, quote, resistance against colonial violence is justified and necessary, close quote. That was met also with widespread condemnation from Jewish groups and others. Um, the university itself condemned it, saying freedom of speech comes, of course, with limits and responsibilities. Liberal MP Anthony Housefather, who is Jewish in Montreal, had this to say at the time. Oh, I think they should decertify the student association. I think York University or should at very least make sure that all of those people who were involved in producing that statement no longer represent students. I think it's up to York University to ensure a safe place for Jewish and pro-Israel students on campus. And it is clear that with this current student society, that is not the case. And it is up to York University to take action. And York has begun to take action as well. I mean, it was the latest in the series of controversial, st controversial statements by Canadian student groups that have provided, you know, that have provoked some outrage as well. Um, meantime, you know, if you want to go to the 
other extreme, Governor Ron DeSantis has ordered Florida University officials to shut down their pro-Palestinian student groups uh, driving the news. Of course, they were saying that uh, this was the state university system chancellor, Ray Rodriguez, said uh, today in a letter to university, yesterday rather, in a letter to university presidents, that their chapters of Students for Justice for in Palestine must be deactivated. So we see a lot of a lot of animosity on campus here. That's what kind of what I was interested in. Obviously, what's going on uh, in the Middle East and the sorts of uh, reactions to it in this country have been heated and divided. And there's a lot of words being being tossed around. But what I was really curious about is how did this end up being such a lightning rod of an issue on campuses across the country? And what does it say? Now, Kenneth Stern is probably the best position to talk about this of anyone on the continent. He's director of the Bard Center for the Study of Hate. He's also the author of a book called The Conflict Over the Conflict, the Israel-Palestine Campus Debate, which examines why the Israeli-Palestinian conflict has become such a divisive and toxic issue on campus and what can be done about it. And that, of course, is especially heightened with what's been going on of late. And Kenneth Stern joins me now. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. The book was written long before this all happened, but it certainly feels like an, a prescient time to talk about it. I suspect a lot of people out there, who they, if they haven't been in and around a university campus or don't know anyone who's been on one in a while, might be taken aback by just how how this issue is playing out on campuses around the country. But this is this is nothing new. When did this become such a lightning rod on campuses right across North America and beyond? Well, just to put it in perspective, I mean, in uh, the United States, for example, there are 4,000 campuses. The last time we had data, which is certainly before this last couple of weeks, most campuses, this was not an issue. But some campuses, it has been very much of an issue for uh, a long period of time. You know, the reason that I put the book together was that I saw both sides of this increasingly going into binary spaces, defining the other side as evil uh, and trying to stop the other side from speaking. And to me, that goes against the lifeblood of what a university is supposed to be about. A university is supposed to be about a place to explore ideas, to create the opportunity to be wrong and rethink what you're thinking. And I, I saw much the opposite. And so that's what I was trying to document. Certainly in the last couple of weeks, we've seen this tendency on steroids, but the tendency was there well before it. Yeah. I mean, I think there's been some very high profile examples, whether it was at Harvard or here in Canada, there's been a a couple. I think what what maybe even in my case, uh, what people are taken back about a bit about is the absolutism of it, the language being used, the sort of, you know, I'll take the example of, of, you know, a support for Hamas or a support for the Palestinian side, for instance, and just how unequivocally it blames Israel for absolutely everything. And I think people are, are, are surprised by how unnuanced it all is. Yeah, and you know, the, to me, that was sort of shocking too to see some of the the statements that even if you're going to take a pro-Palestinian position, to not acknowledge, you know, the sort of ethical issues of baby killing and taking hostages and so forth, uh, even just to tick a box to to move along has become you know so so binary. And then on the flip side, I've, at Harvard where the students signed uh, you know, this petition. There was a truck that went around. I heard it's in Columbia today where somebody paid to have you know, all these students basically, or a lot of them were part of those, those groups, doxxed. And you know, these are 19-year-olds. Do you want to really do that and say that they're, even though I find their position on this 
unnuanced at best and difficult and, you know, maybe even hateful in some contexts at worst, certainly not expressing empathy. Do I want to sort of brand them this way? Is that what, what education is about? Um, and that those types of, of, of absolutist positions strike me as, as, as morally repugnant and also damaging the university. Yeah, we saw, I mean, job offers withdrawn for some on the Harvard mm-hmm. Law side. I believe that's also been an impact of it. What about on the other side? Because, of course, you know, we believe, I, I believe in free speech on campuses. Obviously, with free with free speech comes responsibility, and there are lines that shouldn't ever be crossed. Uh, but we're also seeing a lot of, I mean, I guess we're seeing a lot of, as you pointed out, the word, the perfect word is binary. You know, you're either with us or you're against us, and that's that. And that's what you've been seeing on both sides here. That, that, that's right. And that's you know, when I put the book together a couple of years ago, the first chapter is really pulling from field of hate studies and knowing from biology, from social psychology, from political science, from other fields about what happens to human beings and our thinking and emotions when we have our identity tethered to an issue that's related to social justice in particular. Uh, and it's not just Israel-Palestine. You find it over abortion. You find it in the United States over, you know, Democrat versus Republican. Mm-hmm. And there are certain things that happen. And what happens basically is when you get into these binary boxes, you tend to see justice on your side and injustice on the other, 100%, you know, good and evil, you tend to try to find simple solutions. You deny the fact that these are complicated problems. The solution is simple. It's their fault. And and we're seeing, seeing more of that, not just on this issue. And that troubles me on a campus, too. And conversely, when I talk to administrators and college presidents and so forth, I say, you know, in a way, this is an opportunity to talk about how do we have differences of opinion on campus? How do we talk about the values of free speech and academic freedom. How do we talk about um, not only how we disagree, but how, how do we treat our classmates in the process of disagreement? How do we create an environment where students welcome being disturbed by ideas? How do we uh, underscore that they're more likely to learn from people with whom they have differences than people that agree with them? How do they develop the emotional empathy and intellectual capacity to think, gee, there's a classmate that's in my physics class or it's in my math class or my dance class that's diametrically opposed to me on this issue that's very important to me. And rather than jumping to they're an evil person who doesn't quite get it, how do I understand how they see the world? And, you know, that is the purpose of education. Yeah, I I suspect, too, I mean, going back quite a ways to my university days, they predated social media. And it feels like the presence of social media, the ability to amplify said message has turned this all into a very much larger and much kind of more brutal situation uh, on on some campuses, not all clearly. Uh, but that's the, the role of social media here can't be can't be under under underestimated. Sure. No, absolutely. I mean, you know, there are more tools for uh, people to take extremist positions and to you know, to be in, uncivil, at least to others. But the, the basic problems are, the, you know, the ideas and where we get into these situations. So it may be, you know, the delivery system has a certain aspects of it that, that may make it more extreme in the moment, but it's not like the ideas are new. When we're, you know, talking about hate in general and social media, you know, I, I, I point out that when the printing press came out on television right. and radio and Technology can amplify certain challenges, but it could also 
provide certain opportunities too. But the the problem basically is the the system of ideas and how we think of in these challenging times, uh, rather than just the delivery system, in my opinion. I mean, when one looks at this, I think I was saying earlier, I mean, universities to me, my time in a university, I mean, these were times of great learning and finding out things that you didn't think and challenging some of the opinions you had about about situations around the world, meeting people from those places, even who could explain maybe the nuances of them, you know, whether in my case back in the 80s, it was the truth behind, you know, the IRA and the situation in Northern Ireland and things like that being more nuanced than I'd known growing up. Um, but it feels like right now we're kind of, you know, the, the fire is burning. Uh, how do you are you worried at all about where it goes from here? Well, I'm, I'm worried that not this particular situation, because it'll sooner or later, the fighting will end. And, you know, it may still be an issue on the campus, but I think it'll be less than now because I can't imagine it being sustained, you know, for many, 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 many months. But I think, you know, there's a background, as you've been saying, to the the sort of point of this, which is that some of the messages that students have been getting the last number of years has been, you know, you should not be disturbed by ideas, that we're going to protect you from being, you know, shaken by something. And what I tell college administrators is you need to make a distinction between harassment, intimidation, bullying on one hand, and being disturbed by ideas. You want students to be disturbed by ideas. And in some ways, this is an ideal moment to examine that if you're creative with the resources of an academy. So in the short run, you know, there are programs and I've been doing some, I know a lot of other faculty and others have been doing things to, to and being supportive of students, both intellectually and otherwise. But I think it's an opportunity for colleges to think about, should we have some unit about academic freedom and free speech? Because students don't have you know, the same sort of understanding as I I grew up in the civil rights era and the Vietnam War era, and I saw free speech and the protection of it on and off campus is important for progressive politics to fight for civil rights, to fight for Vietnam. And there's a out of not a bad place. And a lot of students have learned I have a responsibility to protect somebody from hearing something that may disturb them. I'm going to stand up and, you know, I'm not just let it pass. And that's translated into trying to, you know, to censor. And there are many other things to do. Courses, initiatives on how do you have these difficult discussions, and the tone of the campus saying, really, you know, you're in the safest place to be totally disturbed by ideas, and we're going to help you figure that out. And the more that we talk about the capacity of the educational institution to do those things, the better off will be. And I think there's an opportunity here. I feel for administrators who are like putting out fires, but I also encourage them to think about the period of time where they'll be able to implement a lot of these types of ideas to really improve how they teach in the campus culture. Right. I mean, and you point, you, you make a good, obviously make a good point. I mean, back in the 60s and so on, university administrations were often off put by, put off by what was being said on their own campuses by their own students. I guess one of the things that, that, that I find a bit surprising here is just how extreme some of the opinions are and, and how much there is no room to talk. Right. And that, that to me seems, seems, um, you know, that doors are being closed when you put out statements that sort of say, that sort of refer to something as, you know, uh, whatever you know, non-israel or whatever they people referred sort of the 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 elimination of something is the kind of language that i just didn't expect to see emanating from university students in 2023 this kind of othering of something so completely and and that's 
in my case, with a you know very nuanced view of that whole conflict over the years. Yeah, and some of it becomes you know so simplistic, right? If your view of these are conflicting narratives, the you know Jewish Israeli narrative and the Palestinian narrative. Um, and to be a good student, you have to really absorb and understand both. But if you understand the, if you really go 100% behind the pro-Palestinian narrative and see no justice on the, um, you know, the Israeli side, you know, then you may be at the point where anything goes that by any means necessary. And then what you ignore, and this is what I found, you know, troubling in particular, even if you're going to go see the world that way. Is look at what Hamas is, and look at what it did. I mean, you could just say that anything, including killing babies and kidnapping and so forth, is okay. And to ignore that to me is a, a challenge. But I've also seen you know, views on the other side that said anybody who is supporting the quote Palestinian resistance as a 19-year-old, you know, is a virtual Nazi or is a terrorist, mm. um, you know, or that dismissing. To me, reasonable concerns about the number of civilians that may, you know, die depending on what Israel does and is doing. Um, and I think, you know, the things that underscore that we're all human beings should all be looking at the consequences of this and, you know, creating that space are the more important things to do and to give students the ability to really think about, you know, why they may be going down to these spaces as opposed to vilifying them uh, for doing so. Again, they're kids, you know, uh, I'm certainly, uh, you know, I'm 70. I, I haven't changed the, you know, the basic person of who I am, but I hope I've learned something since I was a college freshman, you know, many, many years ago. Yeah. Likewise. Uh, Kenneth Stern, thank you so much. Thank you. My pleasure. Before we do that, we're going to talk about the moon. Now, how old is the moon? Well, I, I have no idea. I mean, if someone had asked me, I might have guessed about 4 billion years ago. And that seems to be about, about the right time frame, right? More or less. Um, but a new study in a journal called Geochemical Perspectives Letters. I read them all. I didn't. I saw this article somewhere cool. I think I saw it in the New York Times. Um, they used crystals brought back from the moon by Apollo astronauts in 1972. So they're using something that was actually brought back from one of the Apollo missions more than 50 years ago to help them better pinpoint the time of the moon's formation. And of course, what's happened is that even though those crystals were brought back more than 50 years ago, the ways that we can measure or watch them or see them or analyze them have improved vastly, obviously, over the last half century. So in you looking at these crystals, they've now determined that the moon may in fact be 40 million years old than we originally thought which mightn't seem a lot when you're talking in billions of years, but still a pretty significant stretch of time, no? 40 million years? Um, so we thought originally that it was about 4.42 billion years old. And now it looks like it could instead be 4.46 billion years old. Uh, why does that matter? Why do those 40 million years matter? Well, it sort of helps better tell the story, not only of the moon, but of Earth and us as well. Philip Heck was the study's co-lead author. Uh, he joins me. He's at the Field Museum's Robert A. Pritzker. He is the Field A. Museum's Robert A. Pritzker, curator in meteoritics and polar studies, a professor at the University of Chicago. Philip, thank you so much. Thanks for having me, and thanks for your interest in our study. 
bring me back in time a bit so that listeners may remember where exactly, because people are all familiar with the moon, I know, but where exactly did it come from? Because that's part of the story. So we think that the moon formed by a giant impact that hit Earth about four and a half billion years ago. Uh, there was an object about the size of Mars, about half the size of Earth that hit Earth, uh, ripped pieces of Earth into space and mixed with the impactor from the disk around Earth. And from that disk, the moon started to form. Uh, but the moon initially was a molten ball of rock. So right. it had a magma ocean that covered the moon. So there weren't any like solid rocks on the moon. And uh, in our study, we actually looked at the first minerals, the first solids that condensed, that formed, uh, that solidified out of this uh, magma ocean. Right. And so we just a, provided a big, a, big fiery a big fiery ball at that time, sort of big molten ball. Exactly. And the question was, okay, how long did this magma ocean last? And uh, um, this, we don't have sam direct samples from that magma ocean that's mainly based on models. Uh, and But with, we have now a sample. We, we, we found a sample from the Apollo 17 mission um, that was really very, very old. And my colleagues at, in, um, at that time in Ottawa studied that, found that sample, studied it, and provided an age for that sample, a really old age, 4.46 billion years ago when right. this crystal formed that they studied. But it wasn't clear if this age was real because uh, these, these crystals could have uh, been disturbed and the age could have been too young or too old. So they approached us in Chicago and asked us to look at that crystal with a machine that's called Atom Probe tomograph. So what that does, it gives us a 1 million times magnified 3D image of that crystal, where we see the position of each individual atom and the type of each individual atom. And what we, our result, what we found was this crystal was completely undisturbed. Oh, wow. None of those atoms have moved out or in from outside. So that was a very nice time capsule from its formation. And we basically showed that this age of 4.46 billion years when this crystal formed is rock solid. Yeah, no pun intended. Let me get this straight. <laughs> What's amazing about this is that this was brought back by the Apollo mission in 1972. So this is more than 50 years old. The sample is, which of course isn't old by the sample standards, but this is something that happened a long time ago. And you said we sort of been perfecting the way that we can judge the age of this sample. Yes, absolutely. And this is really a demonstration of the potential and power of mission, sample return missions that bring back, back a sample. And then those samples are available for future generations to study. And that happened with this Apollo sample that came back to Earth before I was born, right. before my colleagues were born on that team. And we were, um, they were, this, this is not that this sample was just sitting in NASA's curation facility for 51 years and no one touched it. It actually was intensively intensively studied and people found it was old it was interesting that's why we looked at it and but we have now tools available machines available to analyze the samples that weren't available 51 years ago and the same will be true in 50 years from now or 100 years from now Science, future generations of scientists will be able to answer scientific questions that we can only dream of today Right. You mentioned that, I guess, 4.46 billion years was the age we had sort of, by using this particular sample, we had established 4. Point, not we, but scientists had established 4.46 billion years. You, you 
found that it might be just a little bit older. I mean, in, in the grand scheme of things, 4.46 to 4.52 is not huge, but it's significant if you think about it. 40 million years is 40 million years. Yeah, exactly. 40 million years is a long time, even in uh, like a lot of things can happen, even on a planet uh, like Earth or on the moon, on an object like the moon. But of course, in relation of its entire age of four and a half billion years, 4.4, 40 million years, mm -hmm. we move that age further back, doesn't seem like much. But it was a lot in the early evolution of the moon. Because think again about 4.5 uh, billion years ago, um, we think that giant impact happened and we had a lunar magma ocean. That it, was, it wasn't clear how long this lunar magma ocean lasted. We at least now can say with this new zircon age when the lunar magma ocean ended. And that was 4.46 billion years because we cannot imagine that the zircon crystal, this crystal would have survived uh, being bathed in magma. It would have been dissolved. Right. It's like throwing a, a piece of uh, uh, salt into a hot soup. It would go, go away. It would be dissolved. Um, so this is really an important nail in the in the lunar timeline that we that we found. What does it signify then to know that perhaps its creation was forty million years earlier than we thought? Uh, what does that add to our? I mean, other than the timeline, what does that add to our knowledge of the long and symbiotic relationship between the Earth and the Moon? Yeah, so that's that's the question that will be hopefully addressed by future studies. So now we have this. Uh, anchor in the lunar timeline, this new anchor, and all the models that explain what happened before this crystal formed, the lunar magma ocean's evolution, for example. We don't have samples from that magma ocean, but the new the models have to now take that into account, that that ground truth from that zircon, and be compatible with that age. So um, the scientists have to go back and uh, refine their models so they're consistent with this absolute age. And that's actually a direct dating method that we use to determine the age of that zircon crystal. And that wasn't a mod, it's not model dependent, it's a real measurement. Uh, what we use is an atom called uranium, mm -hmm. uh, it's radioactive, and that decays into lead. And uh, it's very small quantities, quantities, so it's not dangerous for humans in that in the zircons. So we don't have to wear radiation suits or anything. These are tiny quantities, but it decays. So it's similar, like a um, uh, like measuring time with an hourglass, where you have sand coming from one bulb uh, flowing down into the lower bulb. The uranium decays constant pace to lead. And with that method, we count the uranium atoms and the lead atoms. And with this, can we can calculate the age. So it's a direct measurement of time, if you will. Philip Heck is with us this half hour. He's the Field Museum's Robert A. Pritzker Curator for Meteoritics and Polar Studies. He's a professor at the University of Chicago. He's the senior author of a study that's just come out uh, looking at the age of the moon. Um, of course, the moon is not as old as, as the Earth itself, but uh, it's 4.52 billion years old. And that's just a little bit older than we had thought for a while at 4.46. Uh, this must be an exciting time, Philip, for all those who are interested in things lunar. Uh, now that we look like we're going to go back and gather more and, and, and be able to study more. And as you mentioned, as science is evolving as well, in the case of this one, for instance, this uh, crystal that you've managed to reanalyze 51 years after it was brought back. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a really exciting time. So it's actually, we have, we can use new tools on these old samples that were collected uh, 
51 years ago. The sample itself obviously is older as we, <laughs> as we now we have a very pretty precise age now. And this is not the last word on lunar chronology, of course. This is just the oldest zircon, the oldest crystals that crystal that we have found now. Um, there is more there. I'm sure they're they're pretty rare. These really old crystals, most most zircons, most minerals are younger. But I'm sure that even in the Apollo collection, we find older stuff. We just haven't found it yet. Not every single crystal has been studied in the uh, more than the 300 kilograms of rock that were brought back by the astronauts. But it's also from a relative limited region on the moon. And I'm so excited, and my colleagues as well, who work on the moon uh, with lunar, rock, lunar rocks, I want to say, uh, that new samples will come back uh, some of um, to, the, to Earth will be brought back from different areas. One, uh, people planning to go to the South Pole of the moon, which is a giant impact basin. And there are other interesting areas. It's Imagine you have, uh, have like five samples from Earth. If you take ra five random samples from Earth, would it be representative? Can you tell Earth's history? by just five samples, if probably not. The, or, or all from the same, that's basically the same continent, right? Right, exactly. So we need samples from other regions on the moon to better understand how the moon evolved. And the moon actually is part, I, I call it a, a sister planet. It's it's about a quarter the size of Earth, but it's orbiting Earth. It's almost like a binary planetary system. The moon has such a profound influence on on life on Earth, on humans, and we get inspired by the moon. We can see that in our cultural heritage, in our art, and in our in our writings. Uh, but it also has a huge influence on the biosphere, on life on Earth. Um, but also, um, as dynamicists think that the the lunar the gravity from the moon uh, has an effect on stabilizing Earth's rotational axis. And we already know, of course, the moon has <laughs> gravitational influence. We can mm -hmm. see that with the tides. Um, but uh, only after the moon form, Earth formed, Earth has become, was able to become a habitable planet where life could evolve. Um, if any life would have been there before the moon formed, it would have been erased by the giant impact. Although I don't think life formed before the moon formed. At that time, Earth was about 80% of its current mass when, when it got hit by Theia, this protoplanet uh, that formed the moon. And uh, so, but the formation of the moon is actually intimately tied to the evolution of Earth. So we yeah. want to understand. And the other thing that's really interesting about the moon, the moon lunar surface is really old because now not much geology is happening on the moon. Every, the surface is really old. Occasionally you form, uh, there's a new crater that forms here and there, but it's a very, very old surface. And from a time that is not very well preserved on Earth or not preserved at all, we don't have, such old terrains on Earth. There, there is really to better understand Earth, the early evolution of Earth. Ironically, we have to go look at the moon uh, and study lunar rocks to better understand Earth. That makes the moon really interesting also for those who are mainly interested in Earth. Amazing, yeah, that, that symbiotic relationship we so often take for granted, I would say, we sort of just look up at the moon, but you're right, it's been this, we've grown together, even though uh, you're right, the moon just sort of sits there and is, but it is so much more than that. Uh, Philip Heck, thank you so much. My pleasure, and thanks for having me. Mullets.
Yes. Uh, it, when I think of the mullet, I obviously think of Billy Ray Cyrus and the video for Achy Breaky Heart and all those things And at the time. And, you know, there were many others. I know, of course, the term mullet for a haircut, that's short on top and the sides, long in the back. It originated in the 90s, I think. That's when the term originated. The hairstyle definitely did it. If you go back, apparently you can go back as far as like 1 AD in England. Uh, and they were, you know, they found evidence of people having that haircut. Because in some way, it didn't, didn't get in your eyes and it kept your neck warm, right? It makes kind of sense if you think about it practically. Um, if you fast forward a, a a couple of thousand years. Tom Jones had one in the 60s. Bowie did. Rod Stewart, they had one in the 70s. A lot of women in movies. Florence Henderson on The Brady Bunch had sort of a mullet of sorts. Um, but it was the 80s that really saw the haircut as we know it. Famously, that whole line about, you know, business on top, party in the back. That's when that really uh, became very popular and became the subject of a lot of, you know, a lot of insults as well but think back to that sort of period in the mid to late 80s into the early 90s you know wayne gretzky andre agassi rob lowe patrick swayze um and, and many others and of course dad to miley country star billy ray cyrus uh and his i think it was called the mississippi mudslide if i'm not there's many different terms for them by the way uh like all styles it vanished for a while but it never completely faded away it had little spikes little returns here and there in different parts of the world you'd see it pop up again uh but of late miley cyrus daughter of billy ray ironically a uh, little nas x rihanna they've all sort of had parties in the back a little bit and lots of tiktok users as well uh that have made videos showing off their mullets the hashtag mullet has more than 10 million views, 10 billion views, sorry, forget 10 million, 10 billion views on TikTok, the TikTok. That's a lot of a lot of views. But it really has made a proper comeback of late. Part of it, though, was spurred by the pandemic when so many people found themselves at home, cut off from the usual kind of hair care and not much to do. So why not have some fun with your hair? Why not do something a little out of the ordinary? And of course, a mullet, Oh, why not? And like all returns of fashion, this isn't quite the same mullet as the Andre Agassi mullet or the Hulk Hogan mullet, right? This isn't exactly the same one as you may remember. It's a bit more low-key than the 80s version. Sometimes it's even called the chillet or the chillet, a chill mullet, so to speak. Uh, one place you can spot a whole lot of them and lots of different kinds of mullets is on the website of the USA mullet championships yes there is such a thing that shouldn't come as a surprise and for the second year running the grand mullet champion the title holder is a guy called scott salvador from upstate new york he is the winner of the 2023 men's main m-a-n-e event men's main event he was also the winner of the 2022 event so we thought we'd ask them about the return of the mullet. Uh, Kevin Begala is founder of the USA Mullet Championships. And Scott Salvador, as I mentioned, is the 2023 men's main event champion. And he joins me as well. Thank you both for your time. Thanks for having yeah, me. No Kevin, tell me a bit about, about starting this, because uh, I, I understand the inspiration came from sort of a facial hair on a sort of facial hair. It was kind of the inspiration for why you'd want to do this, but it's been a huge success. Yeah, so I own a store here in Michigan called Bridge Street Exchange, and we've always catered. Uh, it was a men's store up until this year. So for nine years of its existence, we did men's things. And when it came to that, you know, the marketing ideas and stuff like that that I always come up with, um, we've always toyed around doing our own beard and mustache competition or contest. And I was like, well, that's kind of been played out, and there's like so many people have done it. So I'm like, what about a mullet contest? And originally, like before COVID had hit, it was one of those things where I was like, 
the the dream was to find those people out in the wild who have been rocking mullets for like 20 years right. and kind of live through it all. So um, I started out here in Michigan. The first contest was called the Michigan Mud Flap Contest. And from there, um, COVID hit. We had to shut it all down. And then when we came back up and opened my store back up, we started it again just to see what would happen. And at that point, people were pretty bored and wanted to do something. So that first year, we had about 130 people show up at my store to enter. And then kind of from there, we built off of that and then started going to more digital events. And and now what you've seen, uh, it's grown pretty big. Yeah. I mean, I, I agreed. We think back to sort of the, the mid eighties, right. They sort of the birth, I guess it was the birth of the mullet, so to speak, but uh, you're right. During the pandemic, a lot of people had some time on their hands and also an opportunity to let their hair grow, which you didn't do if you had to suit up and go to work every day often. Right. So I guess you got a, it kind of made a change. It's been a real, you made a real splash of late too. I was noticing you got a lot of media coverage as well. The kids one, especially. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think I always kept kept telling everybody it was kind of like lightning in a bottle because I think the idea was there, but then like everything with COVID compounded it and like the hairstyle came back. You see it across so many different um, things now within sports and it's all over the United States. Obviously, it's all over the world. Um, but yeah, the kids contest has definitely captured the hearts of a lot of people. So we were able to cut through politics. We were able to cut through all sorts of fun stuff. Um, but yeah, the kids contest is unreal. It's the people get really behind everybody and it's, it's been a nutty experience. Scott, you're the two-time champ. Uh, you entered the, for the first time last year, one, you entered again this year, one again, you're undefeated as you pointed out, but there's a real cool story behind why you have the mullet. And, uh, and it's, it's, it's a really interesting one. And it's, it says, obviously it's about a lot more than just a style, a hairstyle, right? Right. So this is my second mullet. I shaved the first one off because my wife hated it um <laughs> i didn't know anything about hair care i just started growing my hair out in 2018 because i was tired of the same look right. everyone always tells me you know you're one of a kind guy you're you know i wanted a more unique look to be uh you know if i go to the gas station or the convenience store and someone comes up to me and they they expect me to act a certain way because of my tie and tight haircut they you know it's you know yeah any sense i guess so you know Judging a book by its cover, right, Scott? I mean, it happens all the time, yeah. Yeah, judging a book by its cover. So I start growing my hair out. I didn't expect it to be a mullet, but my stepbrother got me tickets to the Daytona 500. So I started growing it maybe July, August 2018. Um, The Daytona 500 was February 2019. So I I was like, I'm going to cut this into a mullet for the Daytona 500. And when I got there, everyone was like, wow, you know, 2018 mullets are still not in fashion really yeah. you know i might have been the i didn't see a mullet when i was there you go to the daytona 500 this year you're going to see 50 of them but or 100 but i go there so well received and you know my friends are all like that is your hairstyle so it, it grows all summer long and it's it's getting longer it's getting stronger the thing is you know becoming its own its own entity really um you know i'm the guy with the mullet now so Fast forward to 2019, my wife still hates it because it is such a abrasive haircut. Uh, she was my girlfriend at the time. She's moving from New York City to little old Stillwater, New York. She's so upset. You know, I'm changing my, she said, I'm changing my whole life for you. You can't even cut your hair. So I walked down <laughs> to CBS, I bought some clippers and I shaved my head right in her, right in her living room. I stared at her the whole time. 
yeah. knowing how hurt I was. Yeah, um, it sounds like a good move, Scott, though. Ultimately, it sounds like a hair grows back, you know. Love sometimes doesn't. So I proposed to her a couple short months after that, and I kept going to the barbershop. I'd have like a still have the fade. I'd go to the barbershop. I'd just get the sides cut, and I'd be an eighth of an inch long in the back, and she'd get a magnifying glass out. <laughs> and look, she goes, it's not coming back. It's not coming back. <laughs> um, fast forward a couple months to August 2020. We got baptized, uh, baptized together, and... That is when the uh, I never cut the back of my hair again. Right, and and what made you decide to kind of put it put it out for competition? Because you must have thought, well, there's lots of other mullets out there. What's what's going to make mine stand out compared to all the other ones? And yet, you enter, you win, you enter again, you win again. Uh, what's the secret? You think? Yeah. So I wanted to do the because Kevin throws live events, all state fairs, all around the uh, all around the country. So I applied to do the Indiana state fair the next day was the Indianapolis road course race for NASCAR. So I was like, I can make a good weekend out of this. Um, and I kept getting tagged in events for Buffalo cause it's a couple hours away. Um, but it was my wife's 30th birthday. We were going to be uh, out of the country cause 30th birthday for your wife, you know, it's, that's such a huge deal mm-hmm. <laughs> national <laughs> holiday for that. But, so Kevin, she might hear reason, this Scott, you know, she might be listening to this. She actually just got home. Uh, Kevin, Kevin, for some reason, doesn't decide the Lord's drapes makes the cut. So Kevin, Kevin, I'm going to with you there, brother. But um, I got a chip on my shoulder. I'm like, why? Why not? (laughs) The Lord's drapes. I forgot you call it that. Of course, yes. (laughs) This thing is this thing is serious. So I wasn't gonna join the contest. I was kind of butthurt about it. I was like, you know, I'm not doing this. My wife enters me into the contest. The one Uh. who. The one who hates the mullet, she enters me in the contest, and I'm starting to I'm starting to like it again. I'm getting all this attention on Facebook. We didn't know the competition was so big five five hundred something mullets in there, and it's on Facebook voting, and we didn't know voting was happening. So we're gonna like I don't know eight hours before voting closed, we just shared it on Facebook, and so many people started voting for my mullet for <laughs> to, to make the uh, top one hundred. And uh, so I said, I'm going to have a goal here. I'm going to make the top 25 and I'll be happy. So we ended up making the top 25 by the skin of our teeth. And I started to like the attention a little bit. So yeah. the rest <laughs> is history. And then you won, right? Then you, then yeah. you win, then you win. Yeah, Kevin, right. Kevin, I, yeah. What I've noticed, I mean, I think back in the day when we, when someone said mullet, you'd sort of think of Billy Ray Cyrus and you kind of think, okay, yeah, that's what, but when I look at your website now, it's like, I mean, and I've seen sort of photos of many different kinds over the years uh, and seen many different kinds on the streets, but it, it's really evolved now. Like it's, there's so many different kinds of mullets out there and women have them like it, it's, it's, it's pretty, a pretty big tent these days. Yeah. I think it's like mullet 2.0, right? So yeah. everything like when it comes back around, it's a little bit different, just like in fashion and anything else. So um, I think you're seeing it across a wide variety of people now. It's not necessarily just like country people. It's not just in that box of like, you know, redneck looking people. I, it's hard to, you know, put yeah. a box around and people yeah. there's like modern mullets. There's people that are actually doing like short modern mullets and they keep it short. Like, so there's all sorts of different ones. We do have females doing it. We have all sorts of people um, across the country. That's what we're always shocked by. Even in the kids contest here this year, we had a kid from Hawaii that did awesome. Wow. And it's always cool to see like 
how far it reaches. I mean, we've had people enter from Alaska, Hawaii, obviously, all over the country. And it's been just kind of cool to watch it kind of evolve. And, um, you know, the stories that come out of it are what I like, too. It's a lot of the kids' contests. We get a lot of confidence boosters. Um, but overall, this year, I think the big the big piece that I'm, you know, the happiest about is that we raised over $220,000 for charity. So that was a pretty cool feat. Yeah, I was going to mention that it's for a good cause, right? This is not just for the clicks and so on. That's a, this money goes to a good cause. Yeah, so uh, we partnered this year with another like mullet legend, Jared Allen. And here he played for the Minnesota Vikings. And Jared Allen has his own charity foundation that is called Jared Allen's Homes for Wounded Warriors. And they provide mortgage-free homes to disabled veterans here in the United States. So it, it was definitely a cool way to help out. And, you know, this contest raised $220,000. That's pretty remarkable. That is. And, uh, and, and Scott, you too, you, you donated some of your winnings to charity as well, right? Yeah. Last year I gave all my winnings to my uh, local church. Uh, the government would probably take about 50% if I had it. So what's the point? Um, <laughs> But the, my local church, uh, a lot of churches in my area were, you know, getting shut down because of COVID. You know, their yeah. numbers were dwindling. My church was flourishing. Um, we tripled in size. Our parking lot, we moved into a new building that was, you know, bigger. And the parking lot, after two weeks of services, we're already parking on the street. Um, we had to expand the parking lot. So I donated my winnings to that. It was right in the middle of the fundraiser there. I said, what if the church got behind me in such a big way? Of uh, just you know sharing the post um, and getting people to vote for the getting people to vote for a mullet you know it's, it's yeah crazy. well so, I mean it, there's something there's something cathartic in it too I think but what what about uh, I, I guess you'll be going for a three peat you'll have to yeah my bio said this year if if um, you click on my link to get to the voter page it said you you can't have a three peat unless you go back to back and that was the <laughs> 2021 winner Clint Duncan thug nasty he said that in his. Uh, <laughs> He said that in his bio or something somewhere. I saw him say, you can't have a three-peat unless you go back-to-back. -back. So I said the same thing. I quoted him on it, and uh, we went back-to-back. -back. We checked that box off. Exactly. And, of course, the inevitable question, your wife enters you in this contest. She's the one who wanted it gone in the first place. What's her thoughts on all this? What's her thoughts on, on, on the mullet? Do you win three, and then it's going to be – that's going to be it? You're going to have to sort of uh, – you're going to have to sort of tone down the party in the back, so to speak? Yeah. So I love the uh, – I love that we're doing this for a charity, but you know, three Pete sounds, sounds like I could do better. I think I might just make it so nobody ever wants to join the contest again because they already know the results. Yeah. I've <laughs> like, have like a 10 year reign or something. I don't want to do it. Uh, well, Kevin and Scott, I really appreciate your time on this tonight. Thank you so much. Hey, appreciate yeah. it. Have a